to open uh, your Bibles, please, to Esther chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and it's on page 495 in those Bibles. If you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. And so we're in a series called Finding uh, Your Way Back to God, or Finding Our Way Back to God. It's a series through Esther. This is week six of the series. It's an eight-week series. We're spending a lot of time in chapter four. Uh, so it's a two-parter in, in chapter four. We'll look at that passage again this week. And specifically, we're looking at what do we need? Uh, what do we desperately need in a time of desperate need? We're going to see Esther is in a time of desperate need. What are some of the things that we need? How does God supply for those needs, because he does supply for those needs. Philip Yancey um, once wrote, he talked about a guy who went to a monastery, uh, and he wanted to just have some time away from all the busyness and the distractions, have some time alone and quiet, and the monk that greeted him took him to his room, and the monk said, I hope you have a wonderful stay, and if you need anything, let us know, and we'll teach you to live without it. So this is kind of the opposite of that because a lot of times we have desperate needs. There's a lot of things that we want. We don't always get what we want, but there are ways that God meets us in those needs. And so we are going to look at, um, you know, God in this sense is saying this is what you can have. And almost all of these are readily available if we'll reach out for them. One of them may take a little bit of pre-work to get there so that when we're in that desperate place, we have it. Uh, so, um, we're going to read the chapter again, uh, but let's pray first, and then we'll read the chapter, and we'll look at the last three needs um, that God desperately, or the last three ways that God meets us in our desperate need. So, this prayer is based on Matthew chapter 10. It's a prayer of illumination. We do this every week, and also a prayer many times for our congregation or our mission as well. So, uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you sent your Son to go before us. He paid our debt, and he gave his life away so that we could know you. By your Holy Spirit, help us to see and to understand the holy invitation that you offer to us. It's only when we lose our lives for your sake that we can know what it means to truly live. Teach us what it looks like to give our lives away, and lead us as we boldly follow after you. Father, we're so thankful for the Fall Fun Fest and the great time that we could have as a church community there for uh, kids, uh, grandparents, parents, uh, friends, aunts and uncles. What a great time that we had of celebration together. Um, thank you for the people that visited as well, and we thank you that we, we're thankful that we can provide this for the community. And uh, we do pray, Father, that... Um, if there's someone that is in need of you or in need of a church home, uh, that you would bring them here or to any church that uh, preaches your gospel and your grace and, and your love and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're going to reread it. Greatest chapter in Esther and one of the great chapters of the Bible. So uh, even though we read it last week, we're going to read it again. But here we go. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done. Oh, I forgot to give a little bit of background. Uh, so if, if you're new to Esther or you have um, 
maybe been a long time since you've read Esther, and maybe you've missed the series. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are two Jewish people that are living in exile in Persia. Uh, and so the Jewish people had been taken into exile. Some had been allowed to return, or they had been allowed to return, but many stayed. And they are among those that stayed. Uh, they are, for all intents and purposes, assimilated into the Persian culture. They are still distinctively Jewish culturally, but the religious distinctives, the keeping of the law, uh, the living by the ethics of the scripture, it's not in their lives. Very evident from chapter two in, in this book. Uh, it's an interesting book because God is never mentioned in the book, and so that kind of fits where Esther and Mordecai um, are in this story. Mordecai is a Persian official, a court official. Uh, Esther rises to the point of being the queen of Persia. And so what has um, transpired uh, just recently is enter the bad guy, Haman. Uh, much longer story as to why this happened, but Haman decides, gets angry at Mordecai and decides to not just destroy Mordecai, but all of his people to kill all the Jewish people. And so he gets the king to go along with an edict that on a certain day, the Persians can take up arms and can kill all of their Jewish neighbors. And so that's where we find ourselves in, in the story. And Mordecai is about to go to Esther, say, Esther, you're queen. Uh, can you intervene? Can you stand in the gap for us? So when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every, prov in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes to him to put on instead of the sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai. So the rest of the chapter is going to be a conversation between Esther and Mordecai, but never face to face. It's always going to go with this person that's going in between back and forth because Esther isn't going to go outside of the city gates and... Mordecai can't come in. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which has been published in Susa, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her and he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I have been called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, 
relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and, cry, and carried out all of Esther's instructions. All right. So they have a desperate need. What do we need when we have a desperate need? First thing, we need a vision of how things actually are. We learn that Esther does, has no idea what has happened. Um, she needed a vision of how things actually are. We need, secondly, we looked at these last week, and I don't have time to review them. We need a courage that's born of conviction. Without convictions, we really, it's impossible to have courage. It's impossible to put our lives on the line or suffer without some good, strong convictions. Thirdly, we need a new or renewed journey toward God. We need a new or renewed journey toward God. One of the foundational assumptions of this series, we've been talking about it since August as the series was coming up. One of the assumptions of this series is that we are a lot like Esther and Mordecai. In other words, in our lives, we have uh, many different ways where our culture seeps into our lives and into our thinking, into our actions. And we are, to some degree, at all times, we're somewhat assimilated in ways that we should not be assimilated, in ways that go contrary to what God has called us to be and to think and, and really what our identity is. And so if we're honest with ourselves and if we're open to the work of the Holy Spirit, we're constantly, he's going to be constantly uncovering ways that we have assimilated in ways that we should not in our hearts and in our lives. And all of us are then finding our way back to God at any given time, uh, even if we already belong to him, even if we are his and we belong to his people. So a journey towards God, a new journey or a return journey back to God is often born in desperation. It's usually how God gets our attention is through desperation. In desperation, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Mordecai turns back to God for the first time. You see him really hold on to God. You see that in the words in chapter 4. He says, God, he doesn't use the word God, but he says relief will come somewhere. He's, he's hearkening back to the promises of God to the people of Israel, that his promises will be carried out. And so Mordecai now is inviting Esther, you know it's a strong invitation, he's inviting Esther to jo join in that journey back to God. Now think back to your own life, uh, many times when you find yourself going away from God, moving away from him, but through something happening in your life, a desperate need, you find yourself going back to God in a way that, that you, maybe for the first time, maybe that's how you came to faith, maybe that's how you became a Christian, it was through a desperate need. Um, but it doesn't have to be your first time, it can be all the times throughout life when you turn back to God and Maybe you start praying like you haven't prayed before, or you begin to trust God in a way that you haven't trusted before, or you begin to hold tightly onto God and onto the gospel in a way that you haven't before, that you've just maybe 
taken it for granted to a certain degree. Um, that's a story, for example, of the younger brother or the younger son uh, in the story that Jesus told about the prodigal sons. Um, Esther is very much like that. Esther is a prodigal daughter who has assimilated into the Persian culture and is far from home. So in the story of the prodigal sons, and it is two sons because there are two sons in the story that are prodigal. In the story of the prodigal sons, the younger son finds himself working with pigs, which are unclean animals, he's Jewish, um, and really almost starving after taking this inheritance that he has demanded from his father, which basically said to his father, you know, you're dead to me. And the father didn't have to do it, but the father did it, gave him his inheritance. He spent it all on prostitution and on partying. And so it says, Jesus said, in the pigsty, he came to his senses. Came to his senses, and he thought, you know, uh, I could never be my father's son again. I've pretty much relinquished that. But if I go back and I work as one of his servants, maybe he'll receive me back as a servant. And I'll be better off as a servant of my father than I am right here, right now, in this pigsty. Mike Cosper, in his book on Esther, we've talked about his book, he compares um, that moment in the story of the prodigal son to the moment when Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Because she's done a little comparison in herself as well, just like the son did. She's come to her senses, and she's really come to the conclusion that I'd be better off dead. Um... I'd be, better, I'd be better off dead, but right with God and with his people than to keep protecting myself and cut myself off from God and from his people. So C.S. Lewis is uh, famous for having said this. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, he's talking about pain here, but he's not really talking about pain, physical pain. He's including that, but he's talking about suffering. He's talking about difficulties. He's talking about those desperate times in our lives. In those kinds of times, it's like we may hear God like we have never heard him before. Mordecai and Esther, obviously, from what we can see in the story, needed the megaphone if they were going to return back to God. And so, and so do I. So do, so do we. Sometimes we need the megaphone. There's a tendency of church folks like me and like many of you as well to kind of look at someone who turns to God in a time of desperate need and go, yeah, but why didn't you do that when things were going well for you? You know, kind of look down our noses sometimes at people for doing that. The reality is that almost always, including in our own lives, that's when we turn back to God. That's the story of the prodigal sons. That's the problem. The, the story is really told about the older brother. He's the one looking down his nose at his brother. Yeah, yeah, when you're starving, you come back here and you want to be a part of the family. Jesus says, exactly. And that's when God's grace reaches out to us and receives us back. So Ian Duguid in his commentary, he says, at times like these, we can, hold, we can no longer, when we're in desperate need, we can no longer pretend to serve God and our idols. We see that the idols, they just, they're not doing it. Now we must choose which refuge we will take in the midst of the storm. These are the defining moments that both uncover and shape who we are at our deepest levels. Without them, 
we might have been able to persist in our comfortably compromised ways, just as Esther may have hoped to live out her life comfortably, concealing her true identity. But in the harsh light of hard problems, however, we need to choose whose we are and whom we will serve, and the nature of those choices cannot be but public. We find in those difficult times that our idols have let us down, and only God can really meet our needs. He may not meet our needs in the way that we want, but we know in the long term it's only going to be through God that our needs are going to be met. But we don't have to wait for the megaphone. I mean, that's usually, usually how it happens, but we don't have to wait. Right now, God is inviting every single one of us to return to him and to begin a new journey or to go back to a journey back to him to surrender our life, to take a part of our life. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's the crisis. Maybe that's the megaphone. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit on our lives, looking at a part of our life that we're keeping God away from, or maybe it's our entire life that we don't want God to be a part of it. So right now, we can ask. We don't have to wait for the megaphone. We can ask God, the Holy Spirit, to speak into our hearts, to unmask our idols, for what they are, the things that really are most important to us, to unmask them, to show us that they are impotent and that in the end they're going to be dissatisfying. We can ask the Spirit to do that. Right now we can turn toward God and we can, we can turn toward that journey where he is once again shaping who we are at the deepest, deepest levels. So that's, that's one of the things that, that is there for us in a time of deepest need or desperate need. The next one is a community praying and fasting. A community that's praying and fasting. This is the one that if we haven't committed to a community, if we haven't founded a community that is a community of praying and fasting that's willing to come alongside us in a difficulty, it's going to be a little hard to find this in our desperate times. It's not impossible, uh, but it's a hard time to be looking for that kind of community because there's a lot of false community um, around that we could try to connect into. But we need a community that's willing to come alongside us and pray for us um, and really come before God. So the Jewish community throughout the, throughout the Persian Empire, we're told, at the beginning of the chapter, here's the edict, and what do they do? Their reaction is to fast. They begin fasting. And when Esther hears about what's happening and needs to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to put my life on the line? I don't think it's going to work. It's probably just going to get me killed. But she's needed to make that decision. She asked Mordecai to ask the community, the Jewish community in Susa, that city, their city, to fast for her. Now, in the Old Testament, a fast is usually a designated period of time where you don't eat and where you all, all you do is you drink, you drink water. And it usually begins in the morning. So a day fast usually begins in the morning and then is broken with an evening meal after sunset in the Jewish world. And so, uh, unless it was a multi-day fast. Uh, and then Esther calls for a three-day fast, including nights, she says, and she says, and no water. So go without food or, or water. Now, one of the odd things about the book of Esther, uh, and interesting about the book of Esther, is just like God is not mentioned, prayer is not mentioned. And so it doesn't, she doesn't say, Pray and fast for me. She just says, fast for me. Now, it's strange that prayer is not 
in there because almost the entire Bible, when you ask someone, when, when people decide we are going to fast for a particular purpose, there's a crisis at hand and we're going to fast for that particular purpose, there's always prayer attached at the hip to that kind of fasting. But as we've talked about a couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago, the book of Esther expects its readers, its original readers, to know the rest of the story of God. So it tells it in a way, I don't know why it does this, but it tells it in a way that we are, it, it calls on the reader to fill in the blanks. It, it purposely leaves God out, it leaves prayer out, but then tells a story in ways of earlier stories or using phrasing from earlier in the Bible, but then it just leaves off that, that aspect of it and expects the reader to fill in um, that aspect of it. Just begs comparison constantly with earlier stories. So when Esther calls her a fast, um, it's an act of faith, and it's something that's counterintuitive. Now, it's counterintuitive in this sense. We're told in chapter 2, Esther wins over the king by her beauty. That's what gets him. It's her looks. When she asks for a three-day fast with no water, Guess what? After three days of fasting without food and water, it's not going to be good for her look. She's going to go before the king, and all she has to bring to him is her looks. And she's not going to go in at her best. So it's counterintuitive that she would do it. And it's an act of faith. The reason I say it's an act of faith is because, I mean, this is, this is the first time we see Esther step out in faith. And the reason we know this is because she doesn't, she doesn't say, go fast. Um, well, it doesn't make any sense if God isn't in the picture. <laughs> in other words, you might fast, as the Jews did at the beginning of the chapter, as a reaction to bad news. And so you fast, you go, this is not a time to eat. This is, you know, it's, you know, it's just, I don't want to eat. I just, I'm just going to, can't, I can't eat. And some people even then add to it sackcloth and ashes. It's like aligning my body with where my heart and my mind are. That's what they're, what they're doing. When she says, I want you to fast on my behalf, well, it doesn't make sense. What does fasting accomplish if there isn't the assumption that God is watching? So while she doesn't say pray, we can supply that. This is the first act of faith on her part. It only makes sense if she knows that there's a God and that God is watching. So fasting is also an act of faith on our part when we fast as an aid to prayer or as an act of worship. Now, uh, I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface on this. We're going to come back to the subject of prayer and fasting this winter when we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend about 12 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface today, but I want to I talk a little bit about prayer and fasting. But before I do that, I have a confession to make. And my confession is that I haven't fasted in years. Uh, not, not for spiritual purposes, I haven't fasted in years. And lately, I've been listening to pastors talking a lot about fasting, uh, especially some, some young pastors. And then there's a pastor here in town that is becoming a friend of mine. And uh, he, I'm, we've been talking about fasting, and he's way ahead of me on his thinking and practice on this. Um, but I haven't fasted. I haven't fasted for several reasons. I haven't fasted partially because I have some confusion in my mind about what it accomplishes, uh, especially because my personal experience with fasting in the past, it has never felt like an aid to worship. It's always felt like a very uncomfortable, I don't know why I'm doing this, this is very painful, you know, type of thing. And um, 
And so that's part of it. I, I don't think I fasted in many years because it's just not part of our tradition. A lot of you come out of the same kind of the tradition that our church is in, this broader tradition of evangelicalism. We don't typically fast because we're suspicious of fasting. It sounds like, and can be, and Jesus even warns of this, that fasting sounds like we're trying to kind of bend God's arm. It's kind of like, look, God, look what I'm doing, you know, so give me what I want. And so we're very suspicious of that. And we should be suspicious of anything if we think, you know, if I can just get more people to pray about something, then, you know, God is more likely. That's not how it works. That's not why we ask more people to pray. We don't pray. We don't even pray thinking, well, he's going to look down. He's going to say, you know, well done. I'm glad you're praying. You know, more likely you've just gotten extra points. So we're suspicious of this kind of thing. And we should be suspicious of this kind of thing but it's not a reason not to fast. And the reality is that part of my confusion and part of the reason I haven't gone against our tradition and part of the reason I haven't gotten it up till now is because I just love to eat. <laughs> and I don't like to deny myself food. When I feel hungry, I hate that feeling of just being hungry. And so that's, that's the reality because if it weren't for that, I probably would have done a little bit of research on this a little bit more before now. And I feel like I'm really behind the eight ball. Okay, so that confession aside, <laughs> uh, let's talk about this just for a few moments. The first thing, um, some of the reasons why we fast, we fast as an act of worship. Now, this is a weird one, uh, a hard one for me to understand. Uh, and one that we will plant ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, because in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, the first 18 verses of chapter 6, it juxtaposes three different practices. It's, it's like a parallelism. It says the same thing about three different practices. Also inserted in there is Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer, okay? But take that out, and it's parallel. It talks about giving, giving money, giving. Uh, it talks secondly about prayer, and then it talks about fasting. It says the same thing about all three. It says we shouldn't do any of those for our own glory. We shouldn't do them so that somebody looks at us and goes, oh wow, that person's a really strong Christian. So much so that Jesus exaggerates. And trust me, he exaggerates a lot. He's a typical Hebrew person. And the Bible is filled with exaggeration in order to make a point. And they all know it, they're reading it, they know it. It's like when he said, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, right? Uh, his disciples' eyes caught, they never gouged their eye out. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to hate your family. Well, that's in the context of putting your family above God, all right? You're never supposed to hate your family. Um, and this is one of those cases. He says, if when you pray so that you're not even tempted, he says, or if you're tempted, you should go. It doesn't even say if. He says, when you pray, you got to pray in private, go into a closet, nobody can see you, and pray in a closet, well, we know Jesus prayed publicly. We know the disciples prayed publicly. We know that he was not against public praying. And we know that he wanted public praying. But he's making a point. Rather, if, if you cannot do it without doing it for other people, then find your quiet place. He's also saying you ought to be doing all of this stuff in private. But here's the weird thing in all three. He says, when God sees you doing it for the right reason, he will reward you. He's going to reward me for praying? 
What does that mean? Reward me for praying. Reward me for giving. Reward me for fasting. So we'll look at that when we come. Somebody said, you can't leave us there. Somebody said that last night. I said, yes, I can. This is, this is a cliffhanger. Wait till next season and we'll answer the question. All right. So <clears throat> secondly, fast. Oh, by the way, you can, you can study this stuff on your own too. So you don't have to hear it from me. Number two, fasting as a response to brokenness over sin. Now, that mostly has to do with just a, a brokenness where we see how we have been rejecting God and walking away from Him and going in another direction, and we fast primarily because it feels appropriate. It feels inappropriate to feast, for sure, and it feels inappropriate to, to eat. And so that is the basic idea about that. It's an appropriateness. And so you see in Scripture, it's probably one of the most common ways, this one and the next one, one of the most common ways fasting is used in the Bible is just in times of brokenness before God where it just would feel inappropriate to just, uh, you know, oh, you know, Lord, I, I, you know, I just, I'm so sorry. I feel so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go over to Burger King and think about it a little bit more. You know, it doesn't work like that. Um, so uh, it ties in with what we were talking about last week with regard to how we distract ourselves. And that's why we're not really aware of how things actually are. Uh, thirdly, fasting and mourning, very similar to the second one, but this is oftentimes over death or over bad news or over that sort of thing. And again, uh, this might be why the Jews were fasting at the beginning of chapter 4. They're, just, they're mourning. They've just gotten terrible, terrible news and they're fasting. But finally, fasting is an aid to prayer. Even though, as I said, and I think it's, it's in here, in my mind, not here, uh, I said that I haven't found fasting to be much of an aid to prayer. It's probably because I went into it not really understanding how it worked. But um, it is an aid to prayer in Scripture, and it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing as well. So in the early church, for example, here's an example of fasting tied to worship and prayer. So in Acts 13, a bunch of believers church is spreading beyond Jerusalem. It's in Antioch, very strong church in Antioch. And it says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, whatever, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which is an interesting little phrase there, and Saul, who was the apostle Paul before his name changed to Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. This is, this is the sending of the Apostle Paul uh, into to being the great missionary that he was. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So they are fasting and worshiping. Okay, so it's an act of worship. And once they get a word from the Holy Spirit... They continue fasting and praying because fasting is an aid to prayer. Again, we'll come back to that later, uh, but it's something that you can, you can start studying on your own as well. So when we have a desperate need, one of the things that we need is we need a new journey or we need to be in a journey returning back to God. We need to be on that journey. Uh, when we have a desperate need, we need a community around us of fellow believers who are going to pray for us and fast for us. And then lastly, we need a mediator to stand in the gap. So one of the themes that runs throughout the Bible 
from very early on, like from chapter 3 really, is our need for a mediator between us and God. That we need something or someone to mediate between us and God. Now Esther is the mediator in this story. And so it's part of how the Bible, you know, Jesus said, this whole story, if you read the scriptures, Jesus said to his disciples, you read the scriptures, the whole story points to me. Uh, it's all culminating in my coming, my crucifixion, my resurrection. And we see this theme being carried out in the book of Esther. It's not, it's not an accident that it's, that it's there. Um, Esther, Mordecai says to Esther, who knows but that you have achieved your royal position for such a time as this. And we saw a few weeks ago that there is no doubt that the writer and the reader is supposed to know that it's the providential hand of God that has brought her to this position, this place. God's invisible hand has been at work. The people need a mediator. And the mediator has to be Esther, which, by the way, if you were a pious Jew, you know, you are living out your faith, you would look at people like Mordecai and Esther as complete sellouts, for sure, without a doubt, as complete sellouts, like have walked away from their faith. Can you imagine how upsetting it would be that it looks like it's going to be the sellout Esther that you're going to have to depend on for your life and your family's life? That's the story of the prodigal sons. The whole last part of the story, which is the real reason the story is told, is because the elder brother, who stayed with his father, will not come into the party. He is rejecting his father because of his father's abundant grace towards the younger son. That's, that's our story as well, isn't it? Because the longer we're Christians, the more self-righteous we get and the more we look down at other people and like the elder brother, we are actually rejecting God. We're actually on a, on, a, on a trajectory away from him and we need to find our way back to God. The elder brother needed to find his way back to God. You go back to the beginning of Luke 15 where the story is told. Jesus tells the story because the religiously pious believers of his day are saying, Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you do that? Implied, you ought to be condemning them. You ought to be shunning them. And then the next thing it says, so Jesus told them a story, and he tells three stories about finding lost things. The elder brother is us. So um, that's part of the redemption theme that runs throughout the whole scripture. A second way that the redemption theme points to Christ, is that if we decide, you, you and I decide, let's say you come to a point where you're broken over your rejection of God, and you're desperate, you need his help, and you turn to him, and you come before him, um, you have no right to come before him. And actually, you are not acceptable before him. That's the scriptural term. It's like this king who's there, so you can't come in without being summoned. And if you are summoned, I mean, aren't summoned, and you come in, it's only if the gold scepter. If we come before God in Scripture, very clear from beginning to end, if we were to find a way to kind of, you know, after walking away from God all of our lives, to just kind of saunter into God's presence and go, I'm here, I need you now. The Bible says you'll end up dead. 
it's like his holiness will fry you. You'll, you'll be done for. You'll be done. It's like, like Isaiah, when he sees something, you know, he sees an image of God, he's like, I'm, I'm done. You know, I'm a man of filthy lips. I'm done. The only times that we can come before God is if God, in, in the Old Testament, you read, and in the New Testament, is, is if we are prepared for it, if somehow God covers us from the whole, his whole presence. The only way that we now can come before God is because Jesus is our mediator. Because he was willing, instead of us coming before God and being fried and dying, he was willing to come before God with our sin on him on the cross, and he was willing to die in our place. And the scripture says he is now our mediator. What, what does that mean? Is he like, oh, no, no, Henry's okay. No. His mediation is his death on the cross. His mediation is his, that he has paid the price because Henry has put his faith in him. We need a mediator between us and God. And the scripture is very clear about this. If you take this out, there's really no reason for Jesus to die. But here's what it says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. In 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in Romans, Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And so we have that mediator. We celebrate it in communion. Uh, when we celebrate communion every week, we are reminded that we have that mediator, that it's his atoning death, that he has taken the death. We had the death penalty, but he took it upon himself, and he gave us his, his righteousness. We need that in times of desperate need. We need that mediator. We need to remember that we have that mediator. If you've never received, just said it right there. You receive it by faith. You receive that by putting your trust in him. You repent of the direction that you've been going, which means you turn away from those idols, and you turn to God, and you fall before him in his grace and his mercy, and you receive what he did for you on the cross. So let's pray together.